I would like to call your attention this evening to the 34th verse in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. The epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, and verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, last week, you remember, I indicated that this verse and the previous one should really be taken together, as between them they have one big statement, and that is with regard to the challenge thrown up by the Apostle as to whether it can ever be possible in any way for anyone who is justified and who is one of the called of God ever to come again into condemnation. That is the matter that he deals with in the two verses, but he divides it up into these two sections. The first was, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the answer was, it is God himself, as it were, the justifier. But now he takes up the matter again and puts it in a slightly different form. Who is he that condemneth? Comes to much the same thing. Condemnation is the opposite and the antithesis of justification. And yet there is a slight uh, difference. So the apostle, it seems to me, uh, puts it like this in two portions, in two sections, though the fundamental question is uh, in reality the same one. Now, he does this undoubtedly, because, as is his custom and characteristic, he is anxious that we should be made certain of this matter beyond any doubt or peradventure whatsoever. So he leaves no, turn, no stone unturned. He doesn't leave any conceivable argument untouched or unconsidered. That undoubtedly is the reason why he goes into it like this in such detail. He knows that we ourselves are ever ready to conjure up possibilities, and he knows still more that the enemy of our souls is always ready to look for a loophole, always ready to find anything he can that would uh, discourage us and depress us and try and rob us of our confidence and of our ultimate assurance. So in order to help us out of his great pastoral heart, he takes up every imaginable and conceivable difficulty and objection. Now then, you remember also that last week I justified the division of the matter as we find it in the verses of our Bibles as against those who would say that who is he that condemneth is a kind of reply to it is God that justifies. I regard these as statements in and of themselves. Verse 33 is complete in itself. Verse 34 is complete in itself. And you remember the reasons that I adduced for that. So what is the apostle doing in this 34th verse? Well, I think he's doing two main things. The first is this. He is giving us proof positive of the fact that it is God who does justify us, and he is proving to us that God has indeed done so. 
He's not content with just making the statement, it is God that justifies. Or, if you prefer it in the form of a question, is it God who justifies, who is going to bring a charge against us? Now, having made the statement, he now gives us the evidence whereby we can be certain and sure of that fact that God has done that, and that therefore we can never be brought into condemnation. That's the first reason. It supplements, elaborates what he's already told us in the previous verse. But in addition, and this was the thing I want to emphasize, this is the thing I want to emphasize as I argued last Friday night. Judgment, we've been told several places in the scripture, has been committed to the Son. So that the possible argument may arise very well, though it is God that justifies, as the judgment has been committed to the Son, may not the Son condemn us? May not he bring some charge against us and because of the way in which he was treated in this world bring us all again into condemnation? I suggest that here he is equally anxious to show that the sudden will no more bring any charge against us or be the means of our condemnation any more than the Father himself. Very well then. That is what he is concerned to do. But again I would remind you that above everything else, his object in this verse is to demonstrate to us in a final and a satisfactory manner that any form of condemnation for the believer, the called of God, is quite unthinkable in view of the fact of what God has already done for us in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the basic statement. But he divides it up, as you notice, into four statements. It's a fourfold argument. And it is a final argument, a complete argument. And undoubtedly, we shall see as we look at the four steps that they're ascending steps. At any rate, they certainly ascend to the third. And I suggest that in many ways that is the climax. But the third is rarely the climax. I'll give you what I regard as the Apostle's reason for putting the fourth in the fourth position. But here they are, you see. It is Christ that died. There's number one. Number two, yea, rather, that is risen again. Number three, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Number four. Now, this is, of course, one of the mightiest uh, arguments that uh, we can find anywhere in the whole realm and range of Scripture. The Apostle here, I say, lays down statements, propositions based upon truth which can never be refuted and which are the ultimate grounds of our salvation and still more of our assurance of salvation, of our knowledge of what has been done for us. Now, what have we got here? Well, what we have in a sense is a perfect summary, an astounding summary, of our Lord's mediatorial work. That's what this verse really is. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. 
that if we are to get the full weight of what the Apostle is arguing here, we must realize that he is not simply concerned to tell us what our Lord has done or what has been done to him, but that he's anxious to stress each one of these points in terms of the fact that each one of them was done for us. That's where the mediatorial comes in. None of these things would have happened to him in and of himself. They all happened to him because of his relationship to us, because of what he had come to do for his people. In other words, it's all in connection with his mediatorial work. We don't just look at the thing, thing in, things in and of themselves merely as incidents or as items in his life story. We regard them particularly and specifically as things that happened to him because of what he had come to do for us. In other words, in all these matters, he acts as our representative. It is his mediatorial work that is dealt with in these four matters that the Apostle puts before us. And his argument, you see, is this. That it is impossible, obviously, for God who sent his Son to do these things for us and on our behalf. It is impossible for God to punish us or that the Lord Jesus Christ himself should in any way be the cause of our condemnation. Now that's the argument. It, it is indeed another way of saying what our Lord himself said, in, as you'll find it recorded in the third chapter of John's Gospel, in verses 17 and 18, where you read this. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. You see, the Son of God can never be our condemnation. The question is, who is he that condemneth? Well, it can't be the Son of God. Why? Well, he was never sent into the world by God to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, what we are looking at tonight in this 34th verse of this 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans is nothing but a restatement of that. God didn't send his Son into this world to condemn the world. There's no need of that. The world is already condemned. The world is already under condemnation. He sent him in order to save. Now, the Apostle is putting that before us in his own way. Now, let's follow him then as he divides up that great central statement into these four separate subsidiary statements or parts. The first is this. Here's the question. Who is he that condemneth? The answer is it is Christ that died. Or if you like, you can put it in the form of a question. As you could have put that statement last week in the form of a question. Who is he that condemneth? Shall Christ Jesus, who died, it's an equally legitimate way of translating, and perhaps it brings out once more the argument and the force still more powerfully. The thing is unthinkable, that he should be the cause of our condemnation. Why? Well, because it is he who died for us. That's what he's saying. 
It is Christ that died. Now, what does this tell us? Well, let's look at it again. We can never look at it so, too frequently. You say, but I know that. That's what I learned when I was converted. All right, then, all I say to you is this, that if you say you know all about it, you've always had full assurance of salvation. The devil never makes you feel that you're not a Christian. You're never troubled when you fall into sin. That must follow of necessity. But is that true of anybody? It isn't true of anybody. We constantly need to be reminded of these things. This is the way to answer the accusation. This is the only way to be clear about the fact that we shall never come into condemnation. Christ. It is Christ that died. What does that mean? Well, here it means particularly this, as it always means in fact. In dying, our Lord received the condemnation that was due to our sins. That is why he died. That was the cause of his death. He was sinless. No one could bring any accusation against him. Men try to, but they fail. He says himself, just before his death, the devil cometh and findeth nothing in me, nothing at all, even the devil. He was innocent, he was pure, he had given a perfect obedience to the law of God. He had not failed in any respect whatsoever. Therefore, there was no need that he should ever die, because death is the wages of sin. Death is the punishment of sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But he had never sinned. So we are confronted by the fact of his death. It is Christ that died. But you've got to ask the question, why did he ever die? And we've got his own answer. When some of his disciples in their ignorance and their failure to understand were producing their swords in order to defend him, put them back, he says, I don't need them. He had set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. He went deliberately to his death. He said, no, you're not, that I could command twelve legions of angels and avoid all this and be carried to heaven. But he says, I can't do that. I couldn't fulfill righteousness if I did that. So we find that he goes deliberately to his death. And therefore there is only one explanation of his death. He died because he took upon him the guilt of our sin. Or, if you look at it the other way around, God laid the guilt of our sins upon him. He received our condemnation. His death is the condemnation meted out upon sin. But he hasn't sinned. It's somebody else's sin. It is the sins of the people for whom he is dying. That's why he dies. So that's what the apostle is telling us here. That when you look at his death, that's the argument you should deduce. He cannot be the cause of our condemnation. Because his very death proves that he has taken our condemnation upon himself. How can the one who has taken our condemnation upon him be our condemnation? The thing is impossible. Reductio ad absurdum. The thing is monstrous. Now, that's the apostle's way of arguing. And that is the only way in which we can defeat the enemy and defeat the thoughts that arise within us as the result of the instigation of the devil. We've got to reduce this argument to absurdity. And we do it by looking in the true and the right way at the death of our Lord himself. 
Not only that. We listen to his statement there upon the cross. He says, it is finished. What is finished? Well, the work that he'd come to do. What is that? Well, he's already said the same thing in his high priestly prayer. Even before his death, he's able to say, I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And then he says it again, finally, upon the cross, it is finished. What is this? Well, the two things he came to do. He came to give a positive obedience to God's law. He came to bear the punishment, the penalty that the law meets out upon sin and upon transgression. There's an active element, there's a passive element. He's fulfilled both. He can say, it is finished on the one hand and on the other. There is nothing left. But here particularly, he is saying that it is finished in this sense, that the condemnation of the law of God upon our sinfulness has been received. He's received it. He's received it to the full. There's nothing left. It is finished. All that the law has got to say about it and do about it has been done. It is finished. That's what he means. It is Christ that died, and that is how he dies. Very well. God justifies us because of that. That is the cause of our justification. So you see, as I told you, the apostle is here substantiating, proving what is laid down as a proposition. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That's how he does it, and that's why he does it. It is because he has already condemned our sin and punished it that he declares us to be just in his presence. It's the only way, I say with reverence, that God could justify us. Thus, as Paul has already told us in the fourth chapter of this selfsame great epistle, and in verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Very well. God justifies the ungodly, and he does so because he's already condemned. Justification is a declaration that we are no longer under condemnation. But let's look at it like this. This means then that God's justice is fully satisfied. Now that's the most important point. God is just. We were emphasizing that last Friday night. But here the apostle again puts it more in detail in this way in order that we may take a firm grasp of this. Justice is fully satisfied. And therefore we can argue like this. That if we were to be punished now who believe in Christ, it would be unjust. Now that's a very strong statement, isn't it? But it's a statement that we must make not only on the basis of what we find here, but on the basis of what we find the Apostle John saying in his way, in the first epistle, and in the first chapter, and especially in verse 9. 1 John 1, 9. Let me read the eighth verse as well. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, notice, is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the two words that are material there, of course, are the words faithful and just. What does he mean by that? Why does he put it like that? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, what he means is this. That God is faithful to his own way of working and of doing things. God is faithful to his own statements. God is faithful to his own promises. Not only that, God is always just. So that he says, if we who are believers fall into sin and confess our sins, God's own faithfulness and justice demand that he should forgive us. Well, in what respect? Well, in this respect. That God has made the statement that in his Son he was punishing our sins. That his Son took upon him our condemnation. That he bore it. That he bore the punishment which we deserved. Took our guilt upon him. Justice meted out the punishment. It's happened. God has told us that. Well, very well, says the Apostle John. You need have no fear about this. The very truthfulness the faithfulness and the justice of God make certain that you are forgiven because God has already dealt with the sin, has already punished or condemned it and has already punished it in the person of his own son. So you see, we can put it like this. That God's justice now far from being a source of terror to a Christian believer, should be his greatest comfort, his greatest solace, his greatest security. Now this is a very vital part of this whole doctrine of assurance and of final perseverance. We fall into sin and we think of the justice of God and we feel that God would be very much justified if he did punish us that we deserve nothing else. But that's wrong. The argument now should be put like this. The justice and the righteousness and the truthfulness of God now insist upon and demand that we be pardoned completely. Why? Well, because of what he's done in Christ. It would be unjust to punish the same sin twice over. And God can never do that. God can never be unjust. He is faithful and just. Well, that's what the argument really is. So that you see, here is an absolute proof. Not only that we cannot be condemned, but that it is because of the death of the Son of God that this is impossible. For us to be condemned would mean that the sin we are guilty of, which has already been punished in Christ in our stead, should once more be punished in us. Well, that's injustice. All justice demands is the punishment of the sin. Well, it's already had it. It's already satisfied. Our justification declares that. Oh, very well. The inevitable deduction is that we cannot come under condemnation anymore. It would imply and involve that God is not faithful and is not just. All right, there's the content of this first great step in this mighty argument that the Apostle is developing before us.
Who is he that condemneth? Is it Christ that died? The thing is ridiculous. It's impossible. It implies an essential contradiction. It implies that God is no longer just. The justice of God is on our side in this matter now. The justice of God demands that whatever sins we fall into be forgiven and that we be cleansed from all unrighteousness because of what God has done for us in and through the death of Christ. That's the argument. And I know of nothing stronger than that. The thing that is most terrifying to the soul and the conviction is the justice, the righteousness, the holiness, the immutability, the truth of God. But the moment you become a believer, that is, I say, of all things, the greatest guarantee of your security and that you can never come under condemnation. Very well. There is the first step, but let's go on. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died then, yea, rather, wait a minute, yea, rather, that is risen again. Now then, let's have a look at this. Let me give you what I regard as a better translation here. The yea, rather, is all right, but you can put it as but, rather, if you like. But then, yea, rather, says this authorized, that is risen again. But a better translation is, yea, rather, having been risen again. Having been risen again. Now, you'll see the significance of that change, which I suggest is an improvement in a moment. Now then, what does this mean? Why does he say, yea, rather? Why does he hurry on to that? He doesn't stop at, uh, it is Christ that died, yea, rather. I mustn't stop there, says the apostle. I must go on. Yea, rather, that has been risen again. Now, why this? Why this yea, rather? Most significant, most important, and full of meaning, and full of comfort, and full of reasons and arguments, as we shall see, for yet further assurance. Well, what he's saying is this, that this carries it still further. That really was enough, but we got something more, something much more. Indeed, we wouldn't have been able to make our first point if we were not sure already of the second one. Because it's only, in a sense, in the light of the resurrection that you understand the meaning of the death. That was true, you remember, of the apostles? It's always true. It's only as you understand the truth about him revealed in resurrection that you understand all that happened to him before. Well, how does it work? Well, it's something I say that... uh, proves this argument still further and yet more deeply. Let me put it like this to you. The argument in this phrase is one of the most amazing compressions in the whole of of literature. In this one phrase, yea, rather, that is risen again, you've got a synopsis of 1 Corinthians 15. You remember how long a chapter that is, don't you? Well, here it is in a phrase. This is just a a compression, a synopsis, a summary, an epitome. 1 Corinthians 15, the whole argument about the resurrection. In other words, what he's saying is this, that if you couldn't go on to say, yea, rather, that he's risen again, you are yet in your sins. Your faith is vain. 
you're still under condemnation. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, the fact of the resurrection is absolutely essential to our assurance. And that is why people who say it doesn't matter whether you believe or not in the literal physical resurrection are always people who are without assurance. Indeed, they're without a gospel. They can't have a gospel. The apostle's argument there, as it is here, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, as here, is that if you are not sure about this, well, then you've got nothing. Our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. You are yet in your sin. Now, why is this so important? Well, he's already been dealing with this in a sense, as we saw long ago at the end of the fourth chapter, where the last verse is this. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You see, he was dealing finally with this matter of justification and he said that these things that we've read about Abraham were not only written for his sake only, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, delivered to death for because of our offenses, because of our sins, because of our condemnation, and was raised again because of our justification. Now, he's returning to that. He's putting all that again in a different way. But what's he mean? What's he saying? What's his argument? Well, let me split it up for you once more. Let's put it like this. What he's saying is that it was God who raised him from the dead. Hence my suggesting to you the better translation. The scripture is curious about this. Some places seem to say that our Lord raised himself. But the majority of references to this tell us that it was God who raised him. It's a mystery that. But here what the apostle certainly says is this. It is Christ that died, yea rather, having been risen again. It was God who brought him up again from the dead. It was God who raised him from the dead. Now, that's the apostle's customary way of putting it, as you remember. Let me give you one notable instance of it in Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 19. He wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and set him at his own right hand, etc., that's it. It was God who raised him. And you remember in the reported speeches of the Apostle Paul in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in preaching at Antioch in Pisidia, for instance, he brings it out in a very dramatic manner. He says how they crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's always his way of putting it. And that's what he does here. Very well, but there's the first step in the argument, therefore. God raised him up again from the dead. Very well. Why did he do so? Well, the answer there in Romans 4.25 is this. He raised him again from the dead because of our justification. He delivered him to death because of our offenses. He raised him up again from the dead because of our justification. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's important we should be clear about this. The resurrection is not the cause of our justification. 
The death of Christ is the cause of our justification, as I've just been showing you. It isn't, it isn't the resurrection that justifies us. Well, what does the resurrection do? The resurrection is the proof to us that we have been justified by the death. That's what he's saying. You see, Christ had to die because of our sins. He dies because of our sins. He rises because of our justification. The justification is before the rising. The rising is the proclamation, the declaration, the assurance of the fact that we are justified and accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very well. That is the second point, therefore, which we deduce and argue in this way. God, in raising his Son again from the dead, is proclaiming to us that he is satisfied with the work that he had done, that he had fully borne the punishment of sin, that everything the law demanded has been more than fully satisfied, that there is nothing left at all, that he's taken it all upon himself, and that every demand of God's character and law has been fully satisfied. The resurrection is a great proclamation of that. It's because of that that God raised him from the dead. But of course it doesn't stop at that. We go on to a third argument. And a most important one. From the standpoint of our comfort and consolation and assurance of salvation. There are five main enemies that we have to fight. I mean, we were Christians. Now, the early centuries of the Christian church were very concerned about this. And Martin Luther was very concerned about this and gave it a good deal of emphasis. But we don't always emphasize it as we should. The main thing, of course, in the work of salvation is the satisfaction of the justice of God. But when you look at it all from the standpoint of assurance, it's very good to look at it in what has sometimes been called this classical view of the doctrine of the atonement, which puts it like this, that our Lord's work upon the cross delivers us from these five main enemies that confront us. What are they? Well, they are sin, they are Satan, they are the law of God, death and hell. Those are the enemies of men. These are the things that are against us. Sin, and the law, and Satan, and death, and hell. And here is man fighting against these. And before he can have a full assurance, he must be fully satisfied that they've all been dealt with, and dealt with a final and in a conclusive manner. Now, the resurrection helps at this point tremendously. We've seen already, do you see, how sin and guilt and the law have already been dealt with by the death of Christ. But what about death itself? What about the grave? What about hell? Here are powerful enemies and foes that are confronting us. You remember how the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts this in the second chapter of his great epistle? He puts it like this. 
He says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's true of the whole human race, whether they always understand it or not. It's true. Well, now then, the resurrection does this. It is a mighty proclamation of our Lord's conquest over death, over the grave, over hell. What is death? It's the wages of sin. So that's why people are afraid of death. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. That's why people are afraid of death. The sting of death is sin, this sense of guilt. What's going to happen to me? People who call themselves atheists, they don't like facing death, and that's why this fear, it's there, it's innate in the whole of men. The sting of death is sin. When you understand the law, it makes it stronger, and the strength of sin is the law. So you see, we need to be delivered. As death comes and tries to shake us and to make us doubt our salvation and tries to bring us under condemnation, the answer is the resurrection. He has conquered death, he's conquered the grave, he's conquered hell. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? He's led captivity captive. He's conquered everything. The devil and all his forces all have been conquered. He's entered into the lowest parts of the earth and he's led captivity captive. He's conquered everything and everybody that is against us. Even death and hell are conquered. He's conquered them. And the proof of that is to be found in his resurrection from the dead. Very well, then. That is a part of the argument here. It's not surprising that the apostle says, Yea, rather, that is risen again. It not only tells me that God is pleased with the work and accepts it and is satisfied with it, it is a final proof to me that every consequence of sin he has dealt with in detail, he's conquered them all, he's cleared them all, and he rises in proclamation of that fact. Now I reminded you at the beginning that our Lord did all this and endured all this, that all this happened to him as our representative. This is all a part of his mediatorial work. He'd never have been in the world but for us. He'd never have died but for us. He'd never have been buried but for us. He'd never have been risen but for our sake. Very well. You see the deduction we are to draw. This is where assurance comes in. The apostle has really said it all already in chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. Listen. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Listen. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this. He died unto sin once, once and for all, never again. He put himself under the law. That's how he came to die. As I say, he wouldn't have died but for that. But now that only happened to him once. He'll never die again. 
knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. He only died once. He had only need to die once, but he's conquered death in dying once. He'll never die again. He's alive unto God. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God and eternally will. The resurrection proclaims all that. And then you see he goes on to say, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let death frighten you. Don't let the grave frighten you. Don't let hell frighten you. He's conquered them all. He's out of that realm. He came into it for a while in order to save us. He's out of it. He'll die no more. He's alive. We are in him. We are joined to him. You're alive unto God. Nothing can bring you into condemnation. The thought of death should not make a, make a Christian feel condemned. The thought of the grave shouldn't make us feel condemned. The thought of hell shouldn't terrorize us. It's all been dealt with. The resurrection's a proof of it. He's come right through, never again to go back to that. And we are in him. So what is true of him is true of us. You see, here's your assurance. Who is he that condemneth? Let the devil come. Let sin come. Let the law come. Let death come, let the grave come, let hell come. All are answered, yea, rather, that is risen again. Very well, then, I say that realizing this great doctrine that is already laid down in chapter 6 about our union with Christ, you remember it in the early chapters, in the early verses. How shall we, he says, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Know you not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ we're baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that your old man was crucified with him. Now there's the argument. So you see the importance of rushing on to this yea rather that is risen again it is here we are made certain that his death was sufficient that everything has been dealt with here is the proclamation of the fact that we are justified and accepted in him now we've already seen in the 11th verse of this same 8th chapter how the apostle hinted at it there. He says, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Same argument. And Peter, of course, in his way, says, says exactly the same thing in his first epistle, first chapter, third verse. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, begotten us again. When he raised his son from the dead, he said, here is my first begotten, the one I've be this day have I begotten thee by raising him up from the dead. And he's begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. He says the same thing in the third chapter in verse 21. He says the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. 
Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of the dead. What gives me a good conscience toward God is this resurrection from the dead. It's exactly the same argument. And indeed, the Apostle Paul puts it so clearly once more in Ephesians 2.6. You remember the argument. You were he quickened when you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the beginning of the argument. But he goes on to put it like this. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together. We've been raised with Christ. What happened to him happened for us. It happens to us with him because he is our head and representative. We are the body. We partake in all this that has happened to him. So we are risen together with him. And therefore, condemnation is a sheer impossibility. He can't be condemned again. He doesn't go back again under death. Neither do we. We are alive unto God, even as he is alive unto God. And that makes any thought of condemnation not only impossible, but completely ridiculous. Very well, then. You see, we've arrived at this point. We are really staying in, different, in a different way what the Apostle has already said in the first verse of this eighth chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation. There never can be to them that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can therefore never be the cause of our condemnation. It's impossible. His dying for us makes it impossible. His rising again is a proclamation publicly of its utter impossibility. For it is the proof, the declaration of our justification, our acceptance with God because of all that he has done on our behalf. In rising from the dead, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for us. And that makes condemnation a sheer impossibility. In Christ, we must reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Or as he puts it in the 13th verse of that chapter, Look upon yourselves, he says, yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead. Because that is what we are. Very well. We must leave it at that for this evening. But let me remind you again how that hymn that we sang just now really said it all for us. Listen. Jesus lives. Thy terrors now can o death no more appall us. Jesus lives. By this we know thou, O grave, canst, know, canst not appall us, canst not enthrall us. Jesus lives, henceforth is death, but the gate of life immortal. This shall calm our troubled breath when we pass its gloomy portal. Jesus lives, our hearts know well, naught from us his love shall sever, Life, nor death, nor powers of hell, tear us from his keeping ever. Jesus lives to him, the throne over all the world is given. May we go where he is gone, rest and reign with him in heaven.
Very well. That not only sums up the two steps that we have followed this evening, it anticipates the remaining two steps that, God willing, we shall go on to consider together next Friday night. We are climbing up a tremendous staircase here. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Have you got your feet on it? Have you planted your feet firmly on that step? Right. Yea, rather, go on, that is risen again. Are you with him? Do you realize what his resurrection means? Do you realize that you are risen with him? If you do, you will know that there is, there never can be, any condemnation to such as are in Christ Jesus. Oh, may God the Spirit enable us not only to remember these phrases, but to understand their meaning, their significance. May he bring their power to us, that we shall never again, even in thought and in spirit, be brought into bondage, into captivity, into condemnation, into any uncertainty with respect to our ultimate salvation, our final glorification, and of the fact that we are indeed the children of God, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do indeed humbly thank Thee for these amazing truths. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That is how we feel, O Lord, in thy holy and gracious presence. When we realize that all this was done for us, that he is our mediator, that he left heaven and came on earth and lived and died, was buried, and rose again for us. O oh God, we humbly beseech thee, open our understandings to such an extent that our hearts shall be moved and melted, and we shall be filled with a sense of wonder, love, and praise, and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him alone and make our every boast in him. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until... We shall see him as he is and be like him in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.